You're listening to the Yeshiva of Newark podcast. I'm your host and curator, Rabbi Avram Kivalevich, and I hope you enjoy this episode. Forty years ago, this is Emeritus Rex with Rabbi Ruben Yoshua Pupko of Beth Israel, Beth Allen. How lucky they are indeed to have you as a rov for so many years, a, a rov of, of great international importance. <laughs> and you exhibited that importance once again last week when you were accompanying a group of college students to Poland, a place that you probably know better than Squirrel Hill in Pittsburgh. And I know you told me off pod that it was very different this year than it was in previous years. I'll tell you a couple of things. Uh, the, uh, I, I should give a shout out to Maor, a wonderful organization that's operating on many campuses in the U.S. I traveled together with Rabbi Lokic, who's uh, at Boston University, and um, Rabbi Eisenberger from Ann Arbor, Michigan, with University of Michigan. And I've been in Poland, as, as you mentioned, many, many times uh, with a lot of different kinds of groups. It's the first time I've ever gone in the winter, though. And I have to tell you, I know this may sound silly to some, but uh, as much as you read and are aware that, of course, the survivors of the camps were obviously in the camps in the winter, being there in the winter gives one a whole new, uh, I don't know, intimate understanding of uh, an ability to imagine the suffering because the cold. The camps were wide open spaces. We were there. There was ice and snow and the terrible wind. Honestly, it's, it's, it's incredible to me that anybody survived, you know, uh, as long as they did and, and survived to the end of the war. Uh, they, they didn't have parkas to protect them. Just throw in a little rabbinic salvo. Uh, we, we found, you know, when the so much of Jewish life moved to Poland and was, it was so thriving there. And when they, uh, started writing in a halachic fashion, they mentioned how, well, we can't, they talked about the heter of not sleeping in the sukkah, even as early in September and October, because of how cold right. it was. It's cold, and uh, so that was, but I have to say, I mean, on a more important level, on every previous trip, you know, you talk to the young people or different ages, and you talk about how the era of Jewish powerlessness is behind us, how we're living in a radically uh, different world, and it's, it, it is a radically different world, but... I, I somehow felt that when I would express those sentiments this time, last week in Poland, it sounded a little hollow in the aftermath of October 7th. And uh, I sounded less convincing, even to myself. And, uh, you know, for instance, we were at a mass grave of 800 Jewish children outside of Tarnow. And obviously it's impossible to go to a place like that today without thinking about the kids we lost in a brutal fashion on October 7th. So the idea that history has moved on from that kind of barbarity is, is certainly proven false by October 7th. Yes, Jewish lives are no longer taken with impunity. Yes, there's an Israeli army exacting justice in Gaza right now. But it's, uh, it's certainly different going after October 7th and this close to October 7th. Did you sense among your hosts an increased negativity towards their Jewish guests? Listen, I've traveled to Poland many times. There are a lot of wonderful people in Poland. The recent election uh, brought to power a new government, which is different than the government that passed those laws about, you know, not accusing 
you know, po- polls of uh, complicity in the, in, in, in the Holocaust. It's a different governance, but it's much more liberal and, and mainstream. Listen, the country is, is very diverse. There are pockets of horrific anti-Semitism. You saw the, the video of that guy uh, who's now being stripped of his uh, parliamentary immunity, who used a fire extinguisher on a Hanukkah menorah in the Polish parliament in the SEM. And uh, so, yeah, so there, there are there are frightening pockets of anti-Semitism in Poland uh, till today. But generally speaking, the country has embraced, I mean, in the big cities at least, has embraced a more liberal and tolerant outlook. I mean, there are Poles who have dedicated their lives to protecting the Jewish sites, celebrating Jewish history, you know, uh, cleaning cemeteries. I mean, they're wonderful people. I just was asking because we know that October 7th did throw a match under a lot of dormant anti-Semitism. And I was wondering if you sense that in Europe. The European countries that are experiencing an uptick in in, in anti-Semitism and in places like U.S. and Canada, overwhelmingly that is being um, energized and led by Muslims. It's not traditional European anti-Semitism. I mean, some of it is. I mean, this is, you know, this is Muslim anti-Semitism. And Poland, places like Poland and Hungary were much more careful about immigration than places like, you know, England, you know, France, England and Germany. You mentioned how it was surreal to talk about the Nazi barbarism to the students. Did you get a sense that many of these students who are on this trip uh, that October 7th was a wake-up call for them in terms of stirring their Jewish identity? Listen, I asked the group, I said, anybody here, the child, I mean, the grandchild of, of a survivor? Well, I think one kid raised his hand. Uh, we're not talking about uh, the children of people who came to America after World War II. We're talking about the children of, we're talking about fourth and fifth generation Americans. Uh, these None of these kids had gone to day school. These are kids who, you know, overwhelmingly went to American public schools and, you know, in places like Chicago or, or, or Boston area or New Jersey. And their level of commitment uh, to their Jewish identity is remarkable. Their pride in it is remarkable. Their determination to defend is remarkable. It certainly was a wake up call. Absolutely. It's, it's very hard to project into the future. Very difficult. Notoriously difficult. However, I don't think any of us should be surprised to see 10 years from now that there's going to be a drop-off. I'm not telling you it's going to be overwhelming, but there's going to be a drop-off in intermarriage after October 7th. You you will see it. Let's talk a little bit about the change that is apparent in terms of Israel's pursuit of the war against Hamas. Again, there's so many conflicting reports about, like, uh, you hear that they are willing to have a two-month ceasefire for in exchange for the immediate release of hostages. Uh, we're hearing about more precision attacks. Uh, I mentioned to you right before we started recording, the press, whether it's Haaretz, English Daily, or the Wall Street Journal, they have indicated what, what Israel intelligence knew, that mo- a lot of the tunnel destruction that was considered one of the main purposes of the uh, of the invasion is, is not really going to happen. I, I tell you, the last estimate I saw, I found dispiriting the, the claim that after now, what are we, about 120 days into war, that only 20% of the tunnels have been destroyed, that while in December, uh, Israeli intelligence estimated 
that there were 250 miles of tunnel. Now they're estimating 450 miles uh, of tunnel. Even more expansive than the New York subway system. Right. No, it's incredible. I mean, especially when you when you recall that Gaza at its longest point is 25 miles long. So in an area that's only 25 miles long and less than that wide, you have 450 miles of tunnel. To me, it's astonishing the place is still standing. You'd think it would collapse with that many holes underground. It's Listen, these tunnels are not just smuggling. They're not just for storage. They're not just for escape. They've built an underground fortress. It's a fortress down there. And right now, the reports I read this morning, even though we heard a couple of months ago that the soldiers are going to try to avoid any tunnel combat, they're in the tunnels under Khan Yunus fighting. Right. They did change their uh, stratagem. Again, I, I refer our listeners to someone that you have said is a honest, good reporter, Anshul Pfeffer, his uh, Haaretz article, which details how old these tunnels are, that they come, some of them, right after the 67 victory, and most of them in the 80s. And therefore, even though Hamas took advantage of these tunnels, they've been there for so long because of smuggling, because of uh, bringing uh, stuff in from Egypt. I think Pfeffer writes that for years, you could actually get warm uh, Kentucky fried chicken from one of the northernest uh, spots in, in, in Egypt and bring it into Gaza and it would still be warm. So this was something where, unfortunately, our, our hostages, have there were signs that they've been there. We don't know exactly where they are. And even the sophisticated sensors uh, seem to have failed us. Let's also mention the, the, the terrible day last week, last Monday, the the worst day of Israeli deaths in terms of soldiers, which was the 24 young men who were killed when the RPO rammed into the it rammed into the house that they were uh, investigating and brought the whole house down upon them. What I read is just the result of a lucky shot by the bad guys, and it wasn't uh, they they had no idea what they were doing. It set off a premature explosion in the building designated for demolition, and too many boys were inside the building. It was a disaster, an absolute disaster. We're probably talking of, of dozens and dozens of, of Yusayimim. It's hard to talk about this without sounding callous, but um, right now the estimates are that close to 10,000 Hamas fighters have been killed. Israeli losses are at 220 in the war. I'm not talking about October 7th itself. And, and, and the casualties are less than many people uh predicted right. and anticipated. So generally speaking, the army is is being very careful, being, you know, very methodical. They're not rushing into dangerous places and leaving boys unnecessarily exposed. Also, the medical treatment in the field has changed dramatically. There are radical, uh, revolutionary new medical uh, techniques being used in the field that, that, that are really unprecedented, which are keeping the injured alive and, uh, and, and able to restore them to health. So it's, uh, there are a lot of factors here, but, uh, but that day was horrible. Absolutely hard, devastating. And, and you wonder uh, how many more of those type of days our people can take without really devolving into this frustration. One of the things that I thought was interesting, I don't know if you were aware of the psak of Rabdov Lior, who is, of course, uh, a, a one of the Rosh Hashivas 
in uh, Gush, Haaretzion, that he felt that the uh, on Shabbos that people could travel to stop the aid that was being provided by the Israelis to Gaza, quote-unquote, civilians. Many uh, of, of, of uh, groups, especially spearheaded by persons who had family members who were hostages, felt that this was inexcusable, that we should be giving aid and support to Gaza while our hostages have still not been released. They basically made human shields in protest to say that they were, weren't going to allow any of these uh, trucks to pass through that area in order to provide support. And Rabdov Lior felt that since this was a milchoma, that they had the right, even though they aren't soldiers, to actually be machal Shabbos to do this because this was, in a way, a giving succor and support to our enemies. The fact that such a psak should be issued is, is, is really incredible. And it really shows what's going on in terms of the frustration level of the Israelis. It's a complicated issue. Uh, generally speaking, I think in a, uh, you know, there should be some deference given to the government on their decision-making. We have to assume they know things that we do not and are under pressures that we don't fully appreciate. America wasn't sending aid into Fallujah and Mosul when they were at war. This is a yes. To, to many outside observers, it looks insane. You wouldn't think it would at least humble people like those who sit on the International Court of Justice to understand that to accuse a country of genocide while that country is providing aid uh, and food and medicine uh, is, is, is outlandish. Yeah, so if you're a, a family member of someone being held in that brutal condition in Gaza and just witness those trucks going in through Camp Shalom or the other crossings while you are your family member suffering there can seem criminally insane. But you have to assume that, you know, the Israeli government is not insane and the army is not insane. By the way, let's talk about UNRWA, right? Everybody's defend, def, wants to defund UNRWA. Twelve countries or more have frozen their funding of UNRWA. Let's be very blunt. If you read carefully in the Israeli media, the army is upset that the government gave that intelligence to the U.S. and that UNRWA is being cut off because the army knows if they're not, if the UNRWA is not feeding the Palestinians, then, these, then, then the Israeli army is now responsible for them. The army doesn't want UNRWA cut off. So as horrible as UNRWA is, especially what they do in the schools and the refuge they give to Hamas terrorists, who else is going to feed the people? UNRWA has 30,000 employees, 13,000 or so in, in Gaza or 12,000, and 10% of them, Israel now says, are actually members of Hamas, and that people employed by UNRWA were actually involved in the October 7th attacks. So uh, there's no question. We Everyone's known UNRWA's been a problem for years. My good friend Hill Neuer testified yesterday at Congress, who runs UN Watch out of Geneva. You know, and, he, you know, and he, he's been interviewed all over where he talks about how this kind of information has been known for 10 years. But, but again, to criticize, not even just criticize, but to delegitimize UNRWA is not hard. I mean, there's some horrible people, you know, UNRWA hospitals and schools were used to store weapons and to shield terrorists. We know all of this. But I have to tell you that, you know, we have to be fully honest here. 
the state of Israel never advocated for a cutoff of funding of UNRWA until recently. The army today doesn't want UNRWA cut off. And this is shocking to people who are unaware of it. But I, I mean, I've been involved personally in, in, in lobbying the Canadian government to cut off UNRWA. And we're told by the Canadian government, and it was later confirmed by the Israeli government, that the Israeli government has asked Canada to continue funding. So, it, 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 yes, it's bizarre. But the, but the, but the alternative, the al- nobody has a decent alternative. I mean, no one has a decent alternative to who should run Gaza after the war. No one has a decent alternative as to who should feed Gazans during the war. There's no de- nobody has any good ideas here. I mean, there's there's political paralysis in Israel today over that very issue. Who takes control of Gaza after the war? You have a handful of people who want to go ahead and rebuild settlements and, you know, Bush Katif or whatever. The army says they don't want to be in control. They want to be, be in military control, but they don't want to, have to take care of the civilian needs of Gaza. Nobody does. So uh, who's going to take over? You expect the UAE and Egypt to do it? They're not that dumb. You know, you, you mentioned the International Court of Justice. Aaron Barak, I think, is one of is an Israeli judge who actually sits uh, up there. Uh, well, he was and, sent as the Israeli representative, yeah. And I found it surprising how much effort Israelis did to present their case. They, not only did they present a detailed case of uh, Hamas atrocities. Uh, they they showed videos, I believe, and other evidence of how careful they've been uh, in order to stave off this genocide claim. And the PSAC that came out was saying, well, we, we cannot say that they're committing genocide, but they have to be careful not to do genocide, and they should definitely keep on uh, supplying humanitarian aid. I, I, it was funny to me to watch the news Friday morning because the initial Israeli reaction was positive. Let's be blunt here. Because the initial Israeli reaction was in response to two things. Number one, they didn't call for a ceasefire. Number two, they did not determine that Israel was committing genocide. Now, the problematic parts of the ruling, we know. But if you know something about ICJ rulings, which I, you know, I, I, I was informed of this week, the statement by the court to say, don't commit genocide is pretty much pro forma. That's what they say in every ruling. You know, that's not to get excited about. The worst part, I, I mean, the, what's the worst part? That they didn't dismiss the genocide charge. Yes, that's the worst part. And that they said that some of the actions of Israel, they used some legalese. The bottom line is they were saying it's something worth discussing, right? That maybe it is, or maybe it could be, or, you know. Right. But there was no initial ruling that it was genocide, and they didn't call for a ceasefire. So I think what Israel's concerned about, and this was confirmed to me by, by, by one member of, of, of the foreign ministry, and I think they're right about this, that if the, if the court rules that Israel's committing genocide, that that will do two things. Number one, supercharge the anti-Israel demonstrations across the world. And number two, and this is important, lead Hamas to believe that ultimately Israel will be subjected to enormous international pressure. And therefore, whatever is being discussed, whether it's a temporary ceasefire for hostage release or surrender, whatever it is, this will embolden Hamas. And I think they're right about that, right? Hamas and the Palestinians are banking on triggering international pressure on Israel. And they're also banking on 
internal divisions within Israel, meaning that the population is going to put so much pressure for hostage release that Hamas can up its demands in any hostage release. So, so even though any objective critic could show the holes in the whole international court of justice in terms of what they've ignored over the years, the f- fact remains that the that the public nature of what the, the, the claims that South Africa brought, the way it was uh, portrayed in the media, has an effect, and therefore Israel had to put its energies right. in, in their defense. But, but I do have to say, Alan Dershowitz felt it was a mistake to go. Alan Dershowitz, Alan Dershowitz felt we should have just not showed up. Right. In other words, Dershowitz felt it was a kangaroo court in the first place, and therefore it wasn't. In other words, we give legitimacy to it by showing up to defend it. Yeah, that was my that was my initial reaction too. Uh, and and it's interesting. I like uh, you know the perspective that you're giving us, which shows how nuanced and interconnected and difficult everything is. Speaking about interconnectivity, this week also uh, really was the first casualties of American forces which can be connected to the Gaza war. In other words, even though it was a drone attack in Jordan, actually, and the three reservists that were killed when the uh, w- when that building was hit, uh, we know that the reason why uh, these drone attacks from Hezbollah and others started to increase was to show solidarity and to show some sort of support of uh, against Israeli aggression. There's been 150 attacks on American soldiers since October 7th. And the response from America has been guarded. They're obsessed with not allowing the conflict to expand. They're obsessed with not getting enmeshed in another uh, Middle East conflict that has no simple resolution. But they're, you know, for Biden to maintain the level of passivity which he has in the aftermath of America, he's untenable. He's going to have to do something. His detractors uh, are skeptical whether he'll do anything really significant. Max Boot, writing in the Washington Post, you know, would try to strike a middle ground in his advice to the administration, you know, because there are three ways to it. I mean, uh, that I can think of. Maybe there's more. There's three levels of response. One is hitting the Iranian clients, meaning the militias in Iraq that actually did this. The, number two, the second level would be hitting Iranian Revolutionary Guard meaning real Iranians, but not in Iran, hitting them where they are, uh, you know, in, in, in the militias and in Yemen, whatever, or Syria, but more, more particularly. And the third level, right, with the highest level would be hitting Iran itself. So that's interesting. I mean, uh, that, so he's suggesting number two, not number three. If they're worried about triggering a broader conflict, then just go after the Revolutionary Guard that are positioned in other countries, like Syria. But he, you know, a, a, a full-blown attack on Iran, very few people think is going to happen, although, you know, that should have happened, you know, a long time ago. Right. And, and, and again, you know, we know that the Houthis who are controlling that part of Yemen are basically being supplied and armed by Iran and are acting under Iran's direction. I mean, there's reports that Iranians are on the ground helping them, you know, with their launches. Uh, it's, uh, listen, Iran is the head of the snake. Everyone knows it. Whether it's Hezbollah in southern Lebanon, whether it's Shia militias in Syria or militias in Iraq or the Houthis in Yemen, uh, everyone understands that Iran is the uh, is behind it all. There's an, uh, you know, they're, they're creating this arc 
uh, to encircle Israel. I mean, that's what's happening here. And uh, the day will come when, you know, there'll be a direct confrontation. But, uh, you know, everyone seems to be interested in delaying that day. Let's talk a little bit about American politics. Trump has been uh, ordered to pay, I think, $83 million in, 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 uh, last week. And he's got a bunch of other cases where he's where he's showing up. And I think he's loving the sound bites where he could grumble. And... He's, he's the first guy in history to turn court cases into campaign rallies. Yes. It, it, Americans would love an alternative to the candidates being presented by the parties. Any, you know, I shouldn't say any, but there are a lot of wonderful Democratic candidates or potential candidates who would easily defeat Trump. There are a lot of wonderful Republican candidates who would easily, you know, beat Biden. They are each other's weakest opponent. <laughs> but it, it does seem that, you know, Haley's uh, staying in the race seems to be futile. I'm not sure exactly what, 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 why she's doing it. Setting herself up perhaps for a run for president four years from now seems to be the most logical. You know, listen, it could be she's simply rolling the dice on Trump being uh, convicted in one of the court cases, a criminal conviction, and setting herself up to pick up the pieces if Trump falls. I have no idea. Because you're right. I mean, after New Hampshire and Iowa, it's hard to imagine her winning. South Carolina is really the last gasp. Um, and But right now the polls show Trump very far ahead in South Carolina, where, where of course our listeners know that she was the she was the governor of that state, right? So she has maybe a chance. Uh, listen, she did very well in New Hampshire. She just didn't win. I mean, she got forty three percent of the vote in New Hampshire primary against a pseudo incumbent, meaning Trump. I don't know. It's uh, it's hard to imagine how she pulls off anything. Uh, she's waiting, you know. I, uh, she wants to pick up the pieces when somebody falls apart. But the, you know, again, you know, when people talk about the possibility of a of a of a of a second Trump term, obviously Nikki Haley is not going to have much of a role in that. Oh no, no, she won't. Right. But listen, nobody normal is going to go work for Donald Trump. Did you think it was interesting how immediately DeSantis backed Trump right away? Listen, the Republicans have proved themselves as a bunch of cowards who have to kowtow to this guy because they're afraid of what he's going to say and do to them. Uh, it's, it's bizarre, honestly. No, especially, you know, I, I really, it's, it's, DeSantis seems to be a, a terrible waste. Listen, he decided he was so worried about the primaries that he destroyed. I mean, what I mean by the primaries, I mean, not alienating Trump supporters that he, uh, he lost any chance to distinguish himself. And he had ample uh, ample grounds on which to mount a campaign, the success in Florida and everywhere else, and everything else uh, on the agenda. He had a good case to make, but he didn't make it. Yeah, it truly shows you how fickle politics is. Uh, the, uh, on one of our last recordings, I mentioned about the uh, the border crisis, and uh, and that seems to have been that seems to be uh, an unprecedented event is occurring. Uh, they are Listen, going. If Trump, if Biden loses, I mean, many, many things could happen between now and November. But if, if the election were held today and Biden lost, it would be because of three reasons. It would be because of people are paying more for what they're buying at the grocery store because of the inflation that we experienced, even though it's down, but still being experienced, the aftermath. Uh, it's the border crisis, which is huge. 
and, and crime and uh, the perception of, of, of crime in America. So, I mean, listen, Biden is Nachmila. The guy is completely out of it. He doesn't know who he is or what his name is anymore. And if more of that is exposed, then Trump has an easier path to win. If, if there's a criminal conviction uh, against Trump, then Biden has an easier path. But the idea that it's these two guys, I mean, nobody wants this. Nobody wants this. I mean, how many people are excited about Casey versus, you know, San Francisco in the Super Bowl? They've seen it before. They've seen Biden and Trump before. They want something different. Yeah, there were people, again, it's a good segue for our, to close things off here. Uh, there were many, uh, you know, it was strange, the New York Post uh, crowned Detroit America's team. And it seems like yeah. so many people were really behind that. The idea that the underdog has finally come back. Here was He's the city. Like what were they thinking? Why didn't they kick the field goals? <laughs> well, as you know, Campbell played aggressively. He ran an aggressive campaign throughout. Fourth downs is what he excelled in. Okay, so we'll catch you. Be well. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. I hope you liked what you heard. If you did, please take a moment to share this or any of the many episodes available on our platform with friends in order to help grow our community. Until next time, shalom. Shalom.